Last time we spoke about the successful execution of Operation KE and the Battle of Wow. Operation KE was a success, and the Japanese had managed to evacuate 10,652 people. Simultaneously, while Operation KE was going on, the Japanese had refocused on New Guinea and sought to secure their important bases at Lehi and Salamawa. In order to secure them, the Japanese commenced on a new offensive, this time aimed at Wau, which held a significant airfield that could be used to threaten Lei and Salamawa. The Japanese managed to land significant forces to hit Wau, but the Australians tenaciously held them back long enough to get reinforcements to Wau and to push the Japanese back. The Japanese offensive turned into a catastrophic failure. Yet despite being pushed back, the Japanese would regroup and plan another offensive to take WoW. But for today, we are diving back into the CBI theater. This episode is the first Chindits expedition, Operation Longcloth. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account. It can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, you can get all the standard goodies, early access to all of my content, your names in the credits, and live hangouts and such. But most importantly, I am creating exclusive content for those of you who want to hear more about certain subjects that I can't cover here on this podcast or other projects I'm associated with. So please, check it out. It'll mean a lot to me. The story of Operation Longcloth and the actions that will take place in Burma require us to talk about some notable figures, one of which, to put it frankly, was a very bizarre but fascinating man. Ordo Wingate was born into a military family in February of 1903. His father was a religious fundamentalist who became a member of the Plymouth Brethren. Wingate and his six siblings experienced a very repressed childhood and they were kept away from other children for the fear of spiritual contamination and would endure a regime of religious mania spending entire days reading and memorizing the Old Testament. For Wingate, the religious indoctrination was accompanied by spirit-shrinking Spartan regimes, something like a secular boot camp. When his family moved to Godalming in 1916, Wingate was sent to a charterhouse school. He was very much an outsider there, and he did not mix with the other children, nor did he participate in any sports. 
Then in 1921, he was accepted into the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich, training as an officer in the Royal Artillery. At this point, he suffered a salient trauma. Wingate began breaking all the rules and underwent a ritual known as the running. The other military students summoned Wingate from his room, stripped him naked, and had him run between lines of senior students who whacked him with knotted towels before he was tossed into a tank of icy water. It was the good old running of the gauntlet. Wingate would stare at the other boys right in the eyes and defy them to do their worst to him. Many were intimidated by this and ceased hitting him as a result. Then Wingate would toss himself into the icy water tank. Wingate had thus shown himself to be a student of note at a very early age. By 1923, Wingate received his commission as a gunnery officer and a post at Salisbury Plain, where he gained a reputation for being a skilled horseman and particularly good at the fox hunt. But many who knew him described him to have a darker side. Yet again, he was always breaking the rules and conventions. This became more of an issue by 1926 when he took a post at the military school of equitation where he became very alienated by his peers and his superiors by his arrogant insubordination. But Wingate enjoyed a very powerful patronage for, at this point in his life, his father's first cousin, who he referred to as Cousin Rex, Sir Reginald Wingate, the former Governor-General of Sudan and the High Commissioner in Egypt, took him under his wing. Wingate would take a leave and began studying Arabic at the London School of Oriental and African Studies, and then he served in Sudan and Ethiopia. He also carried on with a five-year affair with a woman named Enid Peggy Jelly, to whom he got secretly engaged. But six years after boarding the liner Cathay at Port Said, returning for his marriage to Peggy, he fell in love with a 16-year-old girl named Lorna Patterson, who was traveling home from Australia. As soon as he got home to Peggy, he notified her that he was in love with another. Wingate married Lorna in 1935, a woman 13 years younger than him. In 1936, Wingate became an intelligence officer with the British Mandate in Palestine and almost immediately became an ardent Zionist, though he himself was not Jewish. Palestine at this time had an enormous Jewish population as a result of the end of the First World War, and of course there was a large influx of those fleeing Nazi Germany in the 1930s. The Arab population saw them as a future threat, and guerrilla groups sprang up to deal with them. Archibald Wavell, the newly arrived commander-in-chief in Palestine, had Wingate form the Special Night Squads, SNS, to combat Arab terrorism. Wingate was an early proponent of using paramilitary actions at night to induce a unique and singular terror in his enemies. He got the SNS to use slavering dogs, a very calculated piece of cruelty since the animals were regarded as unclean by Muslims. The SNS were basically legitimizing Zionist counterterrorism, using Jewish thugs to strike back at Arab thugs. Wingate most certainly performed war crimes and horrible atrocities while leading the SNS, and he was recalled. This should have been the end to his career. However, Wavell and Sir Edmund Ironside kept making up excuses to cover for criticisms laid against Wingate. 
These two men managed to get Wingate back into the game by 1941, where he was brought over to Ethiopia to help fight against the Italians. Backed by Wavell, he attempted another go at the SNS, this time named the Gideon Force. It was a band of irregulars made up of British, Sudanese, Ethiopians, and some ex-SNS. Wingate's force proved spectacularly successful, and this time with no controversy. But still, because of his tactlessness and his insubordination tendencies, Wingate ended up getting whisked out of Ethiopia at the end of hostilities. Wingate found himself in Cairo, in a major depression. He even tried to kill himself with an Ethiopian knife, but he was saved by a man who drove him to the hospital. There is considerable evidence to suggest Wingate was bipolar, and had experienced an acute episode of downswing for his manic depression. Not that I should be adding any critique to this, but uh, since some of you know I have a degree in neurobehavioral sciences, having just recently learned about the vast history of this man and a lot of his tendencies, if I had to pick something, bipolarism would be on top of the list. That and a touch of schizophrenia. Wingate's enemies and critiques were delighted at the news of his downfall, and they hoped he would be court-martialed and tossed into asylum. But Wingate's backers prompted him up yet again. His suicide attempt was attributed to delirium induced by malaria, but as Churchill's personal physician, Lord Moran, would write in his diary about Wingate, Wingate seemed to be hardly sane. In medical jargon, a borderline case. Wingate was certainly a bizarre person. He also had an exhibitionist side to himself, and he was extremely eccentric, as many sources put it. I mean, every source you ever read either has the word crazy or eccentric associated with this guy. He was careless in dress, always unkempt. He had zero respect for military convention or hierarchy, and he expected his superiors to satisfy his every whim. When General Auchinleck succeeded Wavell as commander-in-chief in the Middle East, he met Wingate, who had come to his office in shorts, with a dirty solar toppy and a greasy blue jacket, apparently. Wingate loved to go around camps naked, often appearing out of the shower nude, to bark orders at his men. He liked to wear an alarm clock on his wrist that would go off on odd occasions for no particular reason that anyone could figure out. He was rarely seen without his trademark Wazali helmet and a fly whisk. He carried on a string around his neck a raw onion, which he occasionally snacked upon. Yes, he was an interesting person. He had a lot of food fads, which he imposed upon his subordinates, such as uh, vegetarianism. He also rarely changed his clothes, and he thought doing laundry was unnecessary. Now, Wingate went through a bit of a limbo period until 1942, where Wavell asked for his services to help in Southeast Asia. Originally, Wingate was told he would be training Chiang Kai-shek's forces in guerrilla warfare. And he was quite enthusiastic about this, for two reasons that he gave. Number one, he thought that such an endeavor deemed like teaching one's grandmother to suck eggs. These are his exact words, by the way. 
Number two, he wondered what the point was of sending a Middle Eastern expert to the CBI theater. The second point was a good one, might I add. But the British were desperate. They were running out of people. I mean, it's not even just Wingate, who's a quote-unquote expert of the Middle East that gets sent to the CBI theater. There is also uh, General Slim, for example, famously. Yet, as of February the 27th, Wingate had found himself departing to be the liberator of Delhi, with the rank of major. It would take him three weeks to get over to Wavell, and by that time, Rangoon had fallen. Wavell told him that his job had thus changed. Now he would be in charge of all guerrilla operations against the Japanese within Burma. Wingate was sent to Mamio, east of Mandalay, to take over the Bush Warfare School being run by another colorful character named Michael Mad Mike Calvert. Calvert was coming back to Mamio, returning from a failed operation, and he found Wingate sitting at his desk. Calvert glared at him and asked who the hell he was, and Wingate calmly just simply stated his name. Now, I know you would assume that this would mean these two men would become bitter rivals, but uh, you'd actually be wrong. They got on perfectly fine immediately, and they became very good friends. Yes, Calvert was one of those survivalist kind of crazy types. I mean, he was running a bush school after all, and he, he just loved Wingate, and he loved Wingate's kookiness. The two men both decided their first task should be to go down to see General Slim at Prom. Slim had met Wingate back in East Africa in 1940, both men serving under Wavell against the Italians. Upon discussing the matters of organized guerrilla groups, Slim agreed to some of Wingate's ideas, but doubted his Ethiopian experience would be relevant for the task. As Slim was becoming very aware himself, jungle warfare in Burma was a special type of beast of its own. Wingate was very impressed by Slim. And he said of the man, There is only one soldier worthy of the name East of Suez. He is a bad-tempered little terrier by the name of Slim. When Chiang Kai-shek was departing back to China after a visit in March to India, Wingate managed to take a seat on the plane alongside him. He was hoping to learn a bit more about the warfare in Burma from the Generalissimo himself. However, their aircraft was chased by some Japanese fighters, ruining times for conversation. It's actually kind of a funny story I can't get into, but the plane swerved violently back and forth. A lot of people got injured. Wingate was informed at Changqing that he would not be receiving any Chinese fighters for his program, as they were now going to Stillwell, as a result of the catastrophe that occurred in Burma. When he returned to Burma, he was informed by Calvert that they had sent 100 bush warfare people into the Irrawaddy, and that only 11 survived. Things were chaotic, to say the least. You know, I'm just going to say it here, in retrospect. In defense of Wingate, the situation that he was handed over was absolutely terrible. This is during the times when the Japanese had just completely devastated the Allies in Burma. They come, you know, they rushed them right out. And Wingate comes in, everything is just chaos and no one knows what to do. So, it's pretty interesting what he did with what he had. By the way, I'm never so sure when I'm writing these uh, podcasts. For those of you who actually um, do read 
the transcripts. Uh, I am so sorry. I don't correct my podcast works, not like uh, my professional scripts, because I am kind of you know, shooting off the hip, as they say. But if you want to hear me more talk about uh, deeper insights and, you know, just kind of pitch in things, make contemporary remarks, all that, you know, let me know. You can uh, catch me over at the Pacific War Discord or over at the Kings and Generals Discord. And you can tell me, you know, any critiques you have about the podcast. I would like to hear more about it because unlike YouTube, where there is a lot more comments, when it comes to these podcasts, there's not really a good outlet for direct comments. And, you know, a lot of people, and I mean, I listen to podcasts myself, you don't really have the the need to go over to a different platform to just put in a comment or two. But it would help. I would love to know how to make this better for you. Anyways, back to the story. Wingate then took Calvert for a week-long car tour of the Burmese frontier, making careful notes of animals, insects, reptiles, and terrain details. In Delhi, on April 24th, Wingate announced he no longer had any interest on training a guerrilla group, but instead wanted to create a more proactive, long-range penetration group. He had three major motifs for this. Number one, the Japanese troops behind the lines had to be inferior than those at the front. Thus, the British should simply get behind them. Number two, they needed to use communications based on radio and to be supplied by air. Number three, they had to cut the Japanese supply lines and destroy their arms dumps, thus tying up disproportionate numbers of the enemy. He continuously made his case to his superiors, and many thought him, Nuts, to think that he could train men for jungle warfare in just eight weeks' time. But Wingate just kept pushing for it, insisting also that all the men must be volunteers, and that he needed a minimum of 3,000 men. The finer points of his idea brought up the need to supply special units with airdrops. Not a particularly new idea, but certainly a gung-ho one. Wingate, like many of his contemporaries at the time, were influenced by gung-ho literature that was pouring out of China on the operations of some of these guerrillas that were working for the CCP. His superiors wanted to outright reject his ideas, but Wavell yet again was championing his cause. Wingate won out the day, and it was agreed to allocate the amount of men to his project, which is simply incredible. This is a time when the British need all the soldiers that they can get to train up for a great Burma offensive, and they're going to give this guy 3,000 men. The 77th Indian Brigade was formed, and it was certainly a motley collection. The main British component was the 13th Battalion of the King Liverpool's Regiment, raised in Glasgow. Manchester and Liverpool in 1941. These were older, married men with no dreams of martial glory, typically employed in the coastal defense of Britain, then suddenly shipped to India after the Japanese went supernova in the east. They displayed a lack of enthusiasm for Wingate's ideas. Many of them were also just too old for jungle combat, they were kind of like the weekend warrior types, you know? Wingate rejected 250 of them right off the bat, and Wavell gave permission to fill the gaps with other units. The rest would come from two Oriental units, the first being the 2nd Battalion Burma Rifles. These were mainly warriors from anti-Japanese hill tribes, the Kachins, Chins, and the Karens, and such. Those personally affected by Japan's aggression, 
and they were very eager for payback. They were eager, and better yet, they taught Wingate a lot about jungle warfare, as this was their quote-unquote backyard. The other were Gurkhas, whom always held high regard amongst the British. Though Wingate thought them arrogant, ill-disciplined, and overrated. I have to admit, before reading more about Wingate, I found this to be uh, truly bizarre, because I don't think I've ever read any literature that had anything bad to say about Gurkha troops. There's only ever been, I mean, nothing but praise. Seriously, personally, they're one of my favorite uh, military groups. And, you know, whenever you think of Gurkhas, you kind of picture something like Rambo. One historian of the Gurkhas said of Wingate this. Wingate was the only officer in 130 years of service ever to criticize the performance of Gurkha soldiers, characterizing them as mentally unsuited for their role as chindits. Of course, the same might be said of Wingate. What I think this historian was getting at, and what I myself theorize, is that Wingate saw them kind of as a rifle to himself. Even by this point in history, the Gurkhas had a fantastic legendary history behind them, and I think Wingate was intimidated by this. It's like when, you know, two guys go into a bar and they just size each other up. It's one of those situations. I mean, that's just my theory. Likewise, uh, the Gurkhas found Wingate to be arrogant as hell, overly domineering, and someone who paid little heed to them. And they would argue, rightfully, that they had vastly more experience fighting in Burma than him. They also really did not like him because of his rude and autocratic treatment of them. And just based off of some uh, primary sources, some writings from Wingate, he seems to always treat the Gurkhas like shit. I don't know why. It is bizarre. Wingate divided his force into eight columns, each commanded by a major, and each given 15 horses and 100 mules. The columns would be sustained by airdrops. Thus, an RAF signaling section was attached to each. They trained in the central provinces of India and in the Sagar jungle just due south of Gwalar. Within the jungle training, the idea was to hit the men with every possible scenario they might face, to push them to the absolute limit. They endured pure hell. Encounters with giant snakes, mosquitoes, leeches, Days filled with half-rations deliberately to uh, simulate living off of airdrops. Men collapsed from heat stroke, marching with full packs through heavy vegetation. When the monsoons hit, they were marching through mud, rivers, and torrential rain. Many days began at 6 a.m. with half an hour's bayonet drill, followed by some unarmed combat, and after breakfast they would learn woodcraft, map reading, compass reading, how to forage, and how to distinguish poisonous plants. They learned how to blow up bridges, lay ambushes, how to storm some airfields, and how to properly clear paths in the jungles. It was quite grueling, but very necessary training. From the beginning of the training program, there were sickness levels allegedly as high as 70%. Wingate was ruthless. Just take this. In the case of anyone saying that they were suffering from dysentery, 
He ordered his officers into the bathrooms to inspect the men's stool to prove if they were lying. This guy is nuts. Amongst many of his enemies, the medical corps would be a very large one. Wingate continued to alienate himself, and he made more and more enemies as time went by. At one point, Wingate misunderstood the Burmese word for lion, chinith, as chindit, and he declared it to be the name of his new group, henceforth. Thus, they became known as the chindits. His Burmese aide, Salman Heap, told him the word made no sense in Burmese, to which Wingate told the man, Chizith made no sense in English. Wingate defeated the 70% rate of illness amongst his troops, bringing it down to 3%, via brutal methodology. Mostly genuinely ill men simply carried on, too afraid to acknowledge they were ill, because they would be punished by Wingate. Wingate's eccentric qualities spread amongst the men like his necessity to wear shorts at all times, including in the rain, to eat a lot of raw onions. Yes, he told a lot of his men that they should carry onions around their necks. And he said that they should keep a bunch of buffalo to milk, because he believed their milk had salubrious qualities. That, that last one came from one source, and I, I have not heard anything else about it. It's a weird one. Wingate should have been sacked countless times, but the Rubicon had been crossed, and he was expected to lead his men by 1943. By December of 1942, the Chindits and Wingate were ready for action. They had been trained to carry 70 pounds on a march, they were equipped with tropical uniform, army boots, mosquito nets, mess tins, sterilizing kits, each man had a rifle or a Bren gun, plus 50 rounds of .303 ammunition, and six days' worth of rations. The rations were 12 wholemeal biscuits, 2 ounces of nuts and raisins, 2 ounces of cheese, 4 ounces of dates, 2 ounces of chocolate, 20 cigarettes, which, might I add, greatly annoyed Wingate as he deemed smoking a major hindrance, tea, sugar, powdered milk, salt, and vitamin C tablets. The mules of his force carried 3-inch motors, ammunition, wireless radio sets, and batteries. His force of 3,000 men were divided into eight columns of around 400 men each, consisting of three rifle platoons, a support platoon with two to three inch motors, two Vickers medium machine guns, a mule transport platoon, and an RAF air liaison detachment. In addition, he had 10 platoons for reconnaissance, scouting, and sabotage operations. Now, originally Wingate's force was supposed to be part of a three-pronged offensive, utilizing conventional British forces attacking Akyab and the Arakan, while the Lido and Yunnan forces led by Stilwell would secure northern Burma and reopen the land route to China. Yet, as we all know during this series, Burma was a colossal mess. Originally, four corps would assault Sitang and Kalawa, while 15 corps would attack Akyab and Arakan, but shortages in labor, transport, and a lack of skilled hands led to the cancellation of the major project. Even worse, Chiang Kai-shek, greatly pissed off by decisions made during the Casablanca conference, refused to sanction a Chinese expedition from Yunnan province. 
With all hopes for the great 1943 offensive dashed, Wavell had to consider whether the Chindits were even really relevant anymore. Wavell arrived to Wingate's HQ on February the 7th after countlessly telling the man things were simply getting postponed. You know, Wingate would call in and be like, oh, are we going to be starting this offensive soon? And Wavell would be like, oh, yeah, it'll be in a few months, it'll be in a few months. During a two-hour meeting, Wingate fought bitterly to send his men into the fray, but Wavell stated he could not be party to a pointless waste of lives. Wingate made multiple arguments for sending his boys in. Number one, cancellation would boost defeatism in the Indian Army. Number two, it was essential for the British to overcome their current ignorance of Japanese jungle fighting. Number three, Fort Hertz, the remaining British outpost in Burma, was in desperate need of relief. Number four, without a Chindit crossing, the Japanese would dominate the jungle on either side of the Chindwin River. Number five, the 77th Brigade was not pitch perfect, and any delay would be catastrophic to their morale. Number six, an attack by the 77th Brigade would impair and set back Japanese preparations for an offensive. Wavell apparently was impressed by Wingate's enthusiasm, and he agreed to let the Chindits have their day. I have no idea what Wingate has over Wavell. I don't know why this guy supports Wingate so much. It is weird. Anyways, the Chindits were not directed southeast to help with the Arakan operation, but instead their assignments were to be to cut two railway lines. One between Mietkinya and Mandalay in northern Burma, and the other the Mandalay Lashio line. The codename of Operation Longcloth was given to it, which apparently greatly pissed off Wingate because it wasn't a grandiose title that he had sought. In early February, the seven Chindit columns marched southeast from Impal to Moray on the Assam-Burma border. Once across the border, they split into two groups, the southern group consisting of columns 1 and 2, around 1,000 men and 250 mules, which was a feint to throw off the Japanese, and the northern group consisting of columns 3, 4, 5, 7, and 8, around 2,000 men and 850 mules who would destroy the railways. Small patrols were sent across the Chinwen, marching some 30 miles into enemy territory and coming back without any incident. However, doing that with 3,000 men was another matter entirely. On February the 13th, an advance party of the northern group crossed at Tone, around 50 miles north, to act as a doubled bluff to cover for the southern group's feint. Meanwhile, a disinformation party with the southern group marched south and ordered a huge quantity of supplies from a village known to be aiding the Japanese, providing for a very good ruse. The second wave of 2,000 men from the northern group crossed the Chinwin unopposed on the 14th. Crossing the Chinwin was not easy. While elephants and bullocks swam across with ease, the pack mules proved very skittish, most likely fearing crocodiles. Getting them to the far bank was a nightmare. The southern group also had its problems with their mules. They had the first task of ambushing a 250-strong Japanese garrison at Meiangyang on the 18th. But they ran into a skirmish with the Japanese patrol before they had made it there. The enemy was thus alerted and they bombarded them with motors. 
and this greatly spooked the mules, causing a stampede. Many mules were lost into the jungles, and the element of surprise with it. It was quite a fiasco, costing the southern group a delay of over three days. The southern group slowly pulled away from the hill country, east of the Chinwin, making for the mandalay Mietkinya Railway. By the night of the 3rd of March, they were ambushed in a place called the Mu Valley. It was a utter disaster. Radios, ciphers, and most of their equipment were lost. Column 2 was almost completely annihilated. Column 1 limped back to the banks of the Irwadi, awaiting final orders from Wingate, who instead kept blaming their commander, Major Burnett, for the entire ordeal. As for Column 2, he had this to say. The disaster to Number 2 Column was easily avoidable and would never have taken place had the commander concerned understood the doctrines of penetration. Meanwhile, Wingate and the Northern Group rendezvoused five miles inland from the Chinwen, and they received their first parachute drops. Wingate then pondered his options. He could make for Tonmakeng, where intelligence reported no enemy presence, and wait for the next supply drop, and then attack the 200-strong garrison at Silmaang. Or they could bypass it and head into the Mu Valley. He kept the men marching, and some of his scouts reported a Chinese garrison was at the gold mining village called Metkelet, just 15 miles east of the Chinwen, near Tonmakeng. He ordered columns 3 and 5 under Calvert and another like-minded man named Ferguson to attack at once. Then another disaster struck. Ferguson's column got stuck in a swamp, and the scouts returned again with a new report that no Japanese garrison was at Matkelet after all. So Wingate and Calvert directed the columns to Tom McKent. Wingate's thinking was that it was better to strike at an enemy strength he knew rather than the Mu Valley, which was an unknown at the time. They reached Tom McKeng without further incident by February the 22nd and learnt that a Japanese garrison was at Silamong, 10 miles away, so Wingate dispatched three columns to attack it while the rest of his men waited for a supply drop expected just three days away. Disaster struck. The three columns were unable to locate Silamong after three days, and when they finally found it on the 25th, the Japanese garrison had just pulled out. Wingate met with his officers, and they decided to march to Sibutongden, with Calvert's column number three in the lead. On March the 1st, they made it to Sibutongden, and they proceeded to descend into the Mu Valley. Wingate then ordered the northern group to disperse into columns and rendezvous later, at the Irrawaddy, or beyond. He also dispatched an advance party across the Irrawaddy to the Kachin Highlands, northeast of Mandalay, to try and raise a guerrilla force amongst the pro-British people there. By the night of March the 3rd, disaster struck. At the very same time as the southern group was being ambushed, column number 4 walked into an ambush themselves, two miles west of a place called Pimbao. Major R.B. Bromhead, a descendant of the Bromhead famous for fighting the Zulu at Rourke's Drift in 1879, did his best to get his panicked mules with their Gurkha handlers to disperse and regroup at a rendezvous point, hoping to get help from columns 7 and 8. 
But while trying to do so, the men were attacked again, and by the time they reached the rallying point, columns 7 and 8 had already moved on. With no food or radios and just a handful of mules left, the column had no choice but to retreat back to India. Within just a day's time, columns 2 and 4 were broken and on their way back to India. Wingate was livid. His credibility was at stake. But fortunately for him and his men, the Japanese assumed when they had wiped out column number two that they had destroyed the entire invasion effort. By March the 6th, Calvert and Ferguson's columns were within striking distance of the Wuntho Inda Railway. Calvert and Ferguson hatched a bold and daring plan to assault what was a 800-strong garrison at Pinlebu. They spoke with Major Walter Scott, leading column 8, and they told him to attack Pinlebu while they supervised a massive supply drop just northeast of the town. The idea was for the attackers and the supply collectors to support another. Doing so, they would set up roadblocks to the north and the east of Pinlebu, and call upon the RAF to bombard the town, making the Japanese believe that they were facing a much bigger force than they actually were. The attack turned into an amazing success. The Japanese were quickly confused as Calvert and Ferguson had the railway line demolished. It was some bloody fighting, but the line was blown up in several places. The Japanese counterattacked in force trying to stop the demolition. Calvert's men also mined two railway bridges, one of them a three-span 120-footer. In the bloody mayhem, Calvert and Ferguson's men killed about a third of the Pillabu defenders and cut railway lines in 70 separate places. During the evening, Ferguson's column number 5 blew up the 40-foot railway bridge at Bongyang Gorge, leading also to hundreds of rock and rubble going all over the railway lines around the gorge. Now, 10 miles north of Wuntho, Wingate established his HQ in Bambui Tang Hills. And he had a very tough decision to make. Should he retreat back to India or press further and cross the Irrawaddy? Wingate even considered turning his HQ into a new fort like Fort Hertz to try and push the Japanese and give up the Irrawaddy towns. Wingate, as you probably have guessed, went with option number two despite how unbelievably dangerous it was. The Japanese were hard on their trail as the Chindits made their way trying to cross the Irrawaddy River. And this is where I have to leave our story of the Chindits, but they will come back throughout the war. So just uh, put your onions away for now. We need to make a small detour to speak about the Casablanca Conference that took place from January the 14th to the 24th. Chiang Kai-shek had been begging the Americans and the British for more aid. FDR told Chiang Kai-shek he would champion his demands to Churchill at the Casablanca conference. But Churchill brushed this all aside. The conference ended with two large decisions being made. The first being the controversial doctrine of unconditional surrender. The Allies were now confident after the success of Operation Torch, the victories of Alamein and at Stalingrad, but this now meant the Germans were on the run. But over in Southeast Asia, the Japanese looked impregnable. Thus, the second decision was basically to keep going with the Europe First strategy, full steam ahead. 
The Pacific was simply second banana in World War II. But for America, the situation in the Pacific had distinctly changed. They had won the initiative, and now they sought to consolidate their conquests in the East. Admiral King applied considerable pressure to the matter. In private, he began urging that if the Pacific did not get 30% of Allied resources, quote, It would necessitate the United States regretfully withdrawing from commitments in the European theater. Admiral King wanted to continue the momentum in the Pacific by seizing the Solomons, the eastern New Guinea-Rabal area, to capture back Kiska and the Atu Islands in the Aleutians, and to begin operations in the Gilberts, Marshalls, Carolines, and to take truck. And this would extend the occupation over towards New Guinea and the Dutch borders. The British opposed this, as they continued to argue that the best course of action was to defeat Germany first, and then to devote all resources against Japan. Now, as for the CBI theater, plans were continuing for Operation Anakim and the Burma Offensive, but the British were not looking to extend their commitments in the theater very much. They argued that the depleted condition of the Eastern Fleet prevented them from carrying on a naval supremacy campaign in the Bay of Bengal. And this led Chiang Kai-shek to refuse to support an offensive through northern Burma, because of the lack of British naval forces at hand. Thus, Operation Anakim looked like it was only going to get off in late 1943. For all of the failures of the conference, FDR did try to remedy the situation as best as he could with their Chinese allies. FDR made it known he wanted to treat China as a great power, that the allies would help build up for the current war and post-war. He also acknowledged the dramatic need to keep supply routes to China open. Stillwell advised 5,000 tons of supplies be sent over the hump per month as a goal to hit by February of 1943. And this would require 140 aircraft during good weather and around 300 aircraft during the monsoon seasons. But Washington at this time could only spare around 75 aircraft. Another disappointment to Chiang Kai-shek. Another important side aspect to the Casablanca conference was brought forward by Generals Charles de Gaulle and Henri Giraud, who were vying to become recognized partners to the Allies with their Free French forces. Until this point, the Japanese had a pretty awkward relationship with their technical ally, Vichy France. This awkward situation led them to simply ignore the Free French forces, and by proxy, they decided not to touch the French concessions at Guangzhouan, which had recently declared itself part of Free France. French Indochina, of course, was fully invaded prior to 1941 and remained under nominal Vichy French control, but Guangzhou Wan was beginning to stick out like a sore thumb. Chiang Kai-shek recognized Free France's authority over Guangzhou Wan and many Chinese forces of the 4th Area Army, led by General Jiang Fukui, fled into the concession to escape the Japanese. This drew Tokyo's attention, and they finally decided to put an end to the Free French presence in China. The 23rd Army of General Sakai led two battalions of the 23rd Independent Mixed Brigade from Hong Kong to go over to the Lukau Peninsula. They landed at the village of Pai Chatsun on February the 17th and they began skirmishing with some of the Chinese defenders there. They soon overwhelmed the defenders and seized the towns of Hislatsun and Haikang, 
forcing the Chinese to withdraw towards Suichi. From there, the Japanese continued north, seizing Suichi and Chitkan. After these seizures, the Japanese had fully encircled the French concession of Guangzhouan, and the Japanese representatives of Guangzhouan soon fell into negotiations with the Free French, who were forced to declare the concession an open city, allowing the Japanese to occupy it without a fight. It was yet again another humiliation for France. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account and can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel, where I have exclusive content directed at things you want to hear more about that I can't perform on this podcast or other projects I'm associated with. Go check it out, it means a lot to me. The eccentric, or better said, Madman Wingate, got his wish to send the Chindits into the fray, despite just about no one other than Wavell wanting him to do so. With their trusty onions wrapped around their necks, they made their first strike against the Japanese railways, and it was a surprising mixed success.